Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It wasn't have escaped your notice that this episode is a little late. Well, dear listeners, I've been sick. Nothing life-threatening and I'm fine now, but it was definitely enough to prevent me from writing or researching for about two weeks. This has meant that I've had to push back not only this episode, but the launch of the other half. I'll be talking more about that at the end of the show, but suffice it to say that it won't be launching today, which is what I had announced in the intro episode that I released at Christmas. What has kept me going throughout this period of feeling like death is the number of you who have still been signing up as patrons. It is amazing to me to see how many people are still starting to support me, even as the podcast they know is ending, and the one they don't know is about to begin. So, with that in mind, I'd like to offer my heartfelt thanks to... The three Ks, Kate, Kathy, and Kenda, as well as Jane, Courtney, Lo, Mai, Christine, Edward, and Janice. You're all amazing, and I'm so happy to have you on board. If you're new to the show, well, I would recommend that you start somewhere else, but if you insist, then you are very welcome. But to the rest of you, for the final time, welcome back. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. 
Episode 68, Seasons 2 and 3 wrap-up, The Tudor and Stuart Queens. Season 1 of the Queens of England podcast, the bit that covered the Middle Ages, covered a period of around 500 years and took about a year and a half to complete. And that was with fortnightly episodes. Producing seasons 2 and 3, the Tudor and Stuart seasons, has taken just over it one year and covered less than half the time. And that is with most of it occurring with weekly episodes. There are a couple of reasons why these two centuries, the 16th and 17th, have taken so long to cover. The first is the incredible amount that has been written over the last few decades about the Tudors and, to a lesser extent, the Stuarts. With the medieval queens, I was often dealing with a very small number of written sources and secondary works written by modern historians. With the Tudors and Stuarts, there was a little more primary source material available, especially when it came to personal correspondence, but there was an absolute explosion in the quantity of secondary material. Even queens with very short reigns, like Catherine's Howard and Parr, got a ton of episodes, where someone like Philip of Hainault, who reigned for over four decades, only got one. But the other reason is that the Tudor and Stuart queens both reigned during periods of enormous political and religious change, and also found themselves right in the heart of the action. It is impossible to talk about the English Reformation and not talk about Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Parr. You can't discuss the British Civil Wars and not consider the role played by Henrietta Maria. And of course, no examination of the Glorious Revolution is complete without Mary of Modena and the Warming Pan Baby. The Tudor period is probably the most studied and debated period of English history. And that is down, in large part, to the unparalleled public interest in this era. Most of you listening to this show are not from these aisles. So let me ask you all this. How many of your friends have heard of any wife of an English king who was not married to Henry VIII? How many could name three? Yeah, I bet a good number of them could come up with at least one Tudor queen. For fellow Brits amongst you, can you do any better? That is the power, the lasting pull of the Tudors. Now this period, especially when talking about the wives of Henry VIII, has the tendency to make me a little grumpy. I think personally, that this era is rather overrated in terms of its overall importance. The 16th century is very important, I will grant you. It saw the English Reformation, the spread of printing, and the birth of the Royal Navy. But I would argue the 17th century in England was just as important. It saw the union of the crowns with Scotland, conflict between King and Parliament, which led to the civil wars, the establishment and collapse of Republican government, and culminated with the Glorious Revolution, Act of Settlement, and the Bill of Rights. But I digress. My point is, this is a hugely important period in English history. In it, excepting Elizabeth of York, we have ten queens consort. These were, to remind you, Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr, Anne of Denmark, Henrietta Maria of France, Catherine of Braganza, and Mary of Modena. So let's do what I did on the last roundup, and look at these queens according to the four facets of queenship that I've been constantly using throughout this podcast, and see how they stack up, not just against each other, but also the medieval period. These facets are, to remind you, 1. Children. How many did produce? How many sons? 2. Advantage. What did they bring with them to the marriage? Money, influence, land, claims? 3. Piety. 
Now this, of course, in this era of Reformation, is very different from the medieval period. Here it is not just how good a Christian they were, but were they the right kind of Christian? And four, influence. What influence do they bring to bear? How do they run the court? Did they have political power? How did they use their position to accomplish their goals and satisfy their supporters? Okay, so let's start with children. And we will begin by looking at the numbers. As a general rule, the Tudor queens were not great at producing children, let alone healthy sons. But the Stuart queens were slightly better. Between the ten of them, there are only seven adult sons in total, spread between just four of the queens, only one of them a Tudor, that being, of course, Jane Seymour, who produced Edward VI. That amounts to six sonless queens, or 60%. That is the same gross number as in the medieval period, but of course we had twice as many queens then, so it only amounts to 30%. The numbers are similarly bad if you just look at queens who produced any adult children. In the Tudor and Stuart period, we have four queens who did not have any adult offspring. This amounts to 40%. In the medieval period, it was six again, or 30%. A smaller difference, but still a lower proportion. Why was this? Well, one thing we have to note is the smaller sample size, which skew the numbers a bit, and the difficulty of making generalisations about a 200-year period of history. But that said, there are a few interesting things that I would like to say. The first is that the explanation is not cultural. All of these women, even the later wives of Henry VIII, were expected to give birth to sons. They were all married at a potentially childbearing age, and it seems likely that their husbands all, at the very least, attempted to have sex with them. Even for the Stuarts, who had seen the example of Elizabeth I, producing a healthy adult son was still considered the prime imperative of queenship, just as much as it had been in the Middle Ages and not being able to do so was considered just as much of a failure as it had ever been. The second is that great elephant in the room, Henry VIII. He's responsible for 60% of the wives on this list, and so he does massively skew the sample. He artificially ended four of his marriages, twice by divorce, twice by execution. Catherine of Aragon was not going to give him more children, but the other three could well have had done. They were disposed of for other reasons, be they political, emotional, or some combination of the two. These three women were not given enough time to give Henry a son. Those women that did give birth to sons attained the same benefits as their medieval forebears had. It secured them in their position, won them greater status. Nowhere is that more apparent than with Jane Seymour. She died, of course, after complications related to her giving birth to Edward, and yet in death she was treated with far greater reverence than any of Henry's other wives. She received a magnificent funeral and was granted the honour of being eventually joined by her husband upon his death. None of his other wives got that. Now, if you remember, in the medieval period there was such a thing as having too many sons. Matilda of Flanders and Eleanor of Aquitaine both gave birth to a brood of boys that fought tooth and nail over the succession, and that all led to civil war. Philippa of Hainault's sons didn't fight so much over the succession during their own lives as them, but their competing royal bloodlines led eventually to the Wars of the Roses. Things were a little different in this later period, though. Even the most profligate of the Tudor and Stuart queens only gave birth to three adult sons, that would be Henrietta Maria, and her sons had far bigger fish to fry during their lives than fighting each other. Okay, so moving on from children, let's talk about advantage. So to remind you, in the last span, the medieval period, we had 20 queens. Of these, only four came from England. For the purpose of this, I counted Matilda of Scotland as English. Those of you with mad math skills, such as myself, know that this amounts to 20%. Of the rest, 
10 or 50% were French, 3 or 15% were from the Holy Roman Empire, and the same were from Spain. There are some significant changes in the later span. Of the 10 queens we have, 4 again were English, but this time that makes up 40%. These were all wives of Henry VIII. The final 6 all came from different places. So, making up 10% each of the total, we have, in order, a queen from Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, Denmark, France, Portugal, and Italy. So there are two big trends that we can see here. The first is a big jump in the proportion of domestic brides, a doubling in percentage terms. Now, there are, again, a few reasons for this. One, again, is the great skewing effect of Henry VIII. All the English brides on this list were married to him, and so his preferences and the particular circumstances of his reign play havoc with our numbers. If we look at the domestic brides in the medieval period, they were often chosen for reasons of achieving domestic tranquillity. Matilda of Scotland was chosen to try and curry favour with the native Anglo-Saxon population, and Elizabeth of York because she was a member of the family on the other side of the Wars of the Roses. Anne Neville was married before Richard was in a position to become king, and of course Elizabeth Woodville was likely chosen because of her good looks and charm. Henry appears to have chosen English wives largely because he preferred to know his wives before he married them. He was not content to merely select blindly from a portrait and vague descriptions from ambassadors. The one time he did do that, with Anne of Cleves, did not go well for anyone concerned. All of his English wives were already part of the royal household, often as ladies-in-waiting to the previous queen, and none came with any particular advantage to Henry. They offered no aid to domestic harmony, and certainly offered nothing in terms of foreign alliances or promises of international peace. Except in Catherine Howard, they were from fairly obscure families too, and the marriages more often than not led to factionalism, as the family that they represented gained both power and resentment from their rivals. We'll talk more about that later. This marries quite nicely with the experience of Elizabeth Woodville from the medieval period. Sometimes, very few things change. The second trend that we can see from the numbers that I read out earlier is a widening in the variety of places from where our queens came from. Half of all queens from 1066 to 1509 were French, largely because they were England's chief rival through the period, and thus an obvious place to look for a wife to cement a peace treaty. Conversely, only one Tudor or Stuart English queen was French, and that, of course, was Henrietta Maria. We have another Spanish and an imperial queen as well, but we also have queens from three new places, Denmark, Portugal, and Italy. Now, the Danish example is a bit of an outlier, since Anne was chosen to be Queen of Scots, not Queen of England, so I wouldn't put too much store by her example, but the other two examples are more interesting. When it came to advantage, English kings in the medieval period tended to not look far beyond their borders. It's not surprising, for example, that the Spanish queens in the medieval period were chosen while England held a land border with Spain, thanks to their Gascon and Aquitanian possessions. In our period, we had Catherine of Aragon, who was chosen for reasons of power politics aimed at opposing France, so no real changes there then. But Spain was still pretty far away from English holdings at the time, so that is significant. And of Cleves was largely chosen because of the Protestantism of her homeland's allies and opposition to Charles V, so a new reason there. Cleves wasn't all that far from England, nor from places like Hainault or Flanders, from whence English kings had found wives before. Henrietta Maria was chosen for foreign policy reasons too, in a brief window when England was pursuing a pro-French agenda. The advantage that she offered then in terms of alliance was extremely fleeting, but of course having a relative of a powerful foreign king came in extremely useful for Charles I, but most especially his son, during the civil wars and interregnum. 
The last two queens were, as I've said, from New Pastures. Catherine of Braganza brought with her a very generous dowry, not that England saw much of it, along with two territories, one of which, Bombay, proved to be extremely lucrative in later years. The match with Portugal, though, did not really bring any advice to England beyond that, and much can be said with Mary of Modena. She brought no territory at all, just a dowry that was never properly paid. The choice of these brides, though, does reflect something in a change of English foreign policy. For much of the medieval period that we were looking at, English kings were looking to take either French land or hold on to what French possessions they had. That was still a priority for Henry VIII, but not so much for his successors. They had other foreign policy goals, and that perhaps is one of the major reasons for the drop in the number of French brides. Moving on, let's talk about piety. Now, of the four major areas of queenship, this is the one that saw the most change, because the idea of what made a pious queen change radically over the period but there are still some areas of continuity. One of these is the idea that Caesar's wife had to be beyond reproach. In our period, we have two of history's most famous womanizers, Henry VIII and Charles II, and yet their wives were still expected to be paragons of virtue. There could be no hint of any sexual impropriety. They had to be whiter than white. Indeed, we saw the truest expression of this idea in our period, as two queens, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, were both beheaded, with one of the main charges against both of them being adultery. There were accusations levelled at other queens in the period too, though none of them saw the same sticky end as Anne and Catherine. Another area of continuity is the idea that a queen had to be seen to be religious. She had to attend public ceremonies and display public signs of devotion. Now we saw this with Catherine of Aragon, but this started to fall away during the reign of Henry VIII. And beyond his reign, this is where some of our queens fell into trouble, because often they couldn't make these signs of devotion because they belonged to a different religion. I've mentioned this before, but it's incredibly telling that all of the Stuart kings of England had Catholic wives, despite the fact that the kingdom was now fairly well established as a leader of Protestant Europe. An interesting example of this is Henrietta Maria of France, who did give generously to religious houses during her life and patronised the building of a great chapel to her faith, as well as a convent in France. In earlier periods, this would be looked on with great excitement, but these were Catholic foundations. And so far from improving her position as a queen, they damaged it. They became seen as part of this heretic clique running England that so damaged the image of Charles I in the lead-up to the Civil Wars. There were other queens that held strong religious views who also went against the prevailing grain. These included Anne Boleyn, who owned a copy of an English-translated Bible, when having such a thing was a profoundly dangerous thing to possess. And of course, Catherine Parr, who was not only England's first Protestant queen, but also a fervent advocate for her faith. As a side note, an interesting fact that I had not considered until writing this episode. If we discount Mary II and Queen Anne, as they were Queen Regnants, and George of Denmark because he was a man... England did not have another Protestant queen consort after Catherine Parr until George II took the throne in 1727, making Caroline of Ansbach his queen. That's a 180-year gap, a heck of a long time for a Protestant kingdom. Everyone between them was a Catholic. Indeed, I would argue that most of England's Tudor and Stuart queens fell foul of the religious police of the day. Be they too reformist in a Catholic age or too Catholic in a Protestant kingdom, Many of them struggled to match their own beliefs with the prevailing religious wind of the time. And so finally, we come to influence. And as usual, that's where things get really interesting. In the last roundup, I divided this up into four kinds of influence, and I'll do so again. These were vice-regal power, 
military power, personal power, and soft power. Starting at the beginning, we have two queens who had what we would define as vice-regal power, i.e. the powers of regency while the king went gallivanting off on foreign lands. These were Catherine of Aragon and Catherine Parr. These both occurred while Henry VIII was off fighting in France, and both were given very broad powers with which they could rule England while their husband was away. Catherine Parr didn't have a whole lot to do while Henry was away in France, though it is worth remembering that he did appoint her as regent to his son Edward if he were to die while away. This is also true with Mary of Modena when James II went off to fight for his... Catherine of Aragon, however, was regent for far longer, and therefore had to make far better use of her powers, most famously when she helped to organise the English army that crushed the Scots at Flodden. Queens getting these powers is fairly rare, both in the Middle Ages and in this later period. And given that it occurred in a period where England did not have considerable cross-channel land holdings, as they did in the Norman and Angevin days, the fact that they were given such authority is impressive and indicative of Henry's belief in their capability. In terms of military power, we have two queens who we can say did exercise some a role in that area. As in the last episode, one of the key parts of generalship was logistics. You can't win wars and battles without well-fed and equipped soldiers. I've already talked about the role that Catherine of Aragon played in organising the army that fought at Flodden, but perhaps the best example is actually Henrietta Maria, who was the figurehead of Charles I's armies in the north for a good long while, and won plaudits for her organisational abilities. Her time up north saw great successes for the king's armies, and while it would be wrong to entirely attribute the later royalist defeat in the region to her departure, it certainly didn't help. I have, though, two wild cards that I'd also like to add to this mix. The first is Catherine of Braganza. While she didn't exercise any military or vice-regal power while she was Queen of England, let's not forget that she did rule as Regent of Portugal for a period at the end of her life and helped organise the war effort against Spain. The other is Catherine of Aragon again, who not only held this military power in 1513, but also had the distinction of being the de facto Spanish ambassador during the reign of Henry VII. This is no small thing. Female ambassadors were unheard of in the 16th century, And so this respect shown to her is extremely significant. If we look at personal power, this really wasn't a thing for any of our queens while they were Queen of England. None of them were rulers in their own right when they came to our shores. There are no repeats of queens like Eleanor of Aquitaine, who brought a third of France with her when she became queen. And so finally, we have soft power, the traditionally acceptable-ish face of female influence in history. When it comes to female power, it should be not seen by the public, nor heard, unless it was in the form of female submission, which is a deeply depressing thing to have to say, but that was the way it went. In this period, we have a number of examples of things going badly for queens, and they overdid it on the soft power. Take the example of Catherine Parr, who nearly got herself arrested, tried, and possibly executed after she started to overdo with trying to convert Henry. She was the target of a conspiracy led by Bishop Gardner, and was led to believe that her life was very much in danger. Then there is Anne Boleyn, who helped lead a great faction at Henry's court that included the likes of George Boleyn and Thomas Cramner. If she had been a more passive actor, then there is no way that she would have been considered worthy of targeting by powerful men such as Cromwell, which led to her downfall and death. And finally, Henrietta Maria. I've talked a little bit about this already, but she was seen to be leading a powerful Catholic clique at court that was leading her husband Charles I astray. The attacks on her before and during the civil wars are a testament to the influence that she was seen to have over the king. But we can often turn this on its head. Yes, the way that these women used power did get them into trouble, 
But the reason why it happened was because they were wielding power. Their roles may have been played up a little by their enemies, but all three of these women were extremely influential queens in an era where we didn't see that very often. A more acceptable face of this kind of power, as I've already said, is the traditional ceremony of submission, where a queen would throw herself at the feet of her husband to beg for mercy to be shown to a person, group, or even city. This was fairly common in the Middle Ages. Think of the examples of Matilda of Scotland begging for Robert Curthose to be spared, or Philip of Hainault interceding on behalf of the people of Calais. This did not really occur in our period. The closest that we really have is Jane Seymour, who tried to intercede on behalf of the rebels of the Pilgrimage of Grace, but far from listening to his wife, Henry threatened her with execution. The Tudor and Stuart queens, as a general rule, were not the most powerful bunch in terms of their influence on policy. Catherine of Aragon and Catherine Parr both held important state roles for brief periods, and Anne Boleyn had her faction, and definitely the year of the king. But they don't hold a candle to Eleanor of Aquitaine, for example, when it came to political power. Henrietta Maria was an effective operator in wartime, raising money and troops and organising the effort, but I would argue she was far less influential than medieval queens in similar times of civil strife, such as Matilda of Boulogne and Margaret of Anjou. As I've shown, they brought less in terms of advantage on average, were worse at producing children, and especially bad at giving England those all-important adult sons that she needed so badly. But, as we've seen over the past year or so, they are an absolutely fascinating bunch. A diverse range of women who each brought something a bit different. We've had experienced operators and wise heads, and then we also have Catherine Howard. Religious reformers and staunch conservatives and queens who didn't care much either way, like Catherine Howard. Really, she is the exception to most rules. But what binds them all together, even Catherine Howard, is that they are all vital strands in that great tapestry of history that is England. So often our textbooks and works of scholarship and popular fiction push them out, seeing them as barely relevant to the story. Yet, as we have seen over the course of this podcast... If you look at the history of England from the Norman Conquest, the Act of Union, from their perspective, making them the principal eyes through which you study history, you see them all in a very different light. I once had a pre-interview with a fellow podcaster, one that never went out, and he asked me why I bothered looking at queens. Why are they relevant? What is the point? Well, I don't think you can just dismiss a whole gender as being unimportant to history, even when society was at its most patriarchal. Their stories matter, not just to us as a society, but to the telling of history as a whole. These women oftentimes were at the centre of power, and kings often spent as much time with them as with their chief ministers. They had powerful families and influential friends back at home. Even when we don't have much evidence of their power, it would be staggering if they didn't have some. But, as we have seen, they did. They were among the movers and shakers. They shaped the history of England as much as anyone. They deserve to have their stories told, and it's been my privilege to introduce them to you. It has always been my goal to share the lives of women that you may not have heard of before, or offer a new perspective on ones that have in the past been misrepresented. If I've managed to do that for any of you, then my work is done. And that leads me very nicely onto the next podcast, The Other Half. I will be launching it in two weeks, on Sunday the 4th of February. I'll be posting the first episode on this feed, but I would strongly recommend that you go and subscribe to the new feed if you want to hear any of the other ones. It is all up on iTunes and should be available wherever you get your podcasts. If not, then get in touch with whoever runs your podcatcher and get it on there nice and quickly. 
your fellow listeners will thank you for it. The website has been rebranded and has a new address, theotherhalfpodcast.co.uk, but if you use the old Queens of England URL, it will still bring you there. The Patreon URL has also changed. It is now patreon.com forward slash theotherhalfpodcast, but other than some cosmetic changes, it is exactly the same as it was before. If you were a supporter in the past, you still are, and at the same amount. There is also a new Facebook page, which you can find if you search The Other Half, and a new Twitter feed as well, at Other Half Pod. And that's it. Thank you so much for joining me on this amazing journey, and I hope to see you on the new show, where we will start with one of the most maligned women in ancient history, Livia Drusilla, first empress of Rome. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.